Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm sitting here with Michael Harris. He's a coach, entrepreneur, speaker, survivor. He's part of this uh, program called Endless Stages, and I'm really excited to share your story with, with our audience and really talk about you're from the ashes story, right? And like how you recovered and, and made a wonderful life from tragedy. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. It's, it's really great to be here today. And um, I've listened to some of your past episodes and there are really some remarkable stories of, of people rising from the acid, ashes. Did I say asses? Ashes. I meant ashes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so let, you know, without further ado, let's just dive right in. What's your story? What is your From the Ashes story that you're bringing today? Well, have, have you ever seen a, a, a forest fire go through a forest and burn it up and then a couple of years go back through again and burn it up and then a couple more years later go back and burn it up again? I mean, that, kind of. I mean, Colorado, <laughs> we, we've, I've been through that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we got smoke around where I live. I live in central Oregon, so... Yeah. I, I had that image once of driving through some burnt up forest and, you know, just thinking about my life and what I went through and all of that. And it seems so, so much of it seems so far away. So, I mean, starting out at, at 12 years old, I had a pretty massive water skiing accident. I was a hotshot golfer. I had won the junior championship of Portland Golf Club in 1971. And then we went water skiing for a couple of weeks down at a lake on the Oregon coast. And um, at that time, you know, I was starting to experiment even at 12 years old, Mark, with uh, cigarettes and a little bit of pot and a little bit of alcohol. And here I am, 12 years old, out with some buddies out on the lake, you know, a couple of 15, 16 year olds and my brother and a few other people and smoked a little bit of pot and you know, thought I was a hotshot water skier, just like a hotshot <laughs> golfer, right? Yep, yep. And, you know, I'm going around the lake and, you know, again, it's 1971 and I'm on the outside of the wake and I end up hitting the beach. I don't know how fast I was going, about as fast as you can go from being whipped water skiing on a boat, mm -hmm. whatever speed that is, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. Yeah. I don't know. It was fast. That's fast. Yeah. But went head over heels and went to what the local hospital there at that time, which was really small. And they basically said that I was just bruised and I was going to be OK. Well, the, the next day I ended up back in a hospital in Portland. Mom drove us back to Portland a couple hour drive. And before I knew it, I was waking up 10 minutes later. I mean, 10 minutes, 10 days later. Oh, from wow. A, from a coma. Whoa. And they had removed 60% of my liver, my gallbladder. I had broken ribs. I had a collapsed lung, 21 blood transfusions. The surgery was 20 hours long. Holy shit. Yeah. And I had slid into a coma. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, in hindsight, and I'll skip forward real, real fast. I've been sober 33 plus years right now. So in hindsight, this was really my first alcohol related accident. I didn't think about it at the time like that. Of course, you know, I'm a 12 year old kid and, and, you know, my parents didn't really even know that we were doing that yet at that time. But I had this accident and I died and I left my body, I had a near death experience. And I was in an area, garden area, where there is, I call, I still call it spirit. I call it spirit. And I don't really remember what was said, except for a couple of things that I wasn't through yet. And it was time for me to go back. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go back. And I reached out. And as I felt myself coming back to my body and saying, I'm not ready to go. And they say, you're not done. So I, apparently I'm still not done yet, Mark. You know, that, again, that was 1971, so that was, what, 51 years ago. And I guess I'm still not done. Yeah, well, hold on. Can, I, can we go into that a little bit more? Like, do yeah. you remember how you felt or how vivid this this was? or The near-death experience? Yeah, yeah. Was it kind oh, of like, yeah. a, like a I mean, dream the, the, during the coma or like what, what happened? Yeah, and, and even during my surgery, I felt like I was outside of my body, looking at my body, and I was standing there, and I was holding the hand of a man that, seemed to me, I call him Fred. He's still around. I still call him Fred. Mm -hmm. He's six foot two, six foot four, pretty tall. He had blue jeans and a red plaid shirt on. And the only thing that I can think of, rather than looking like some Indian mystical angel type person, was that this spirit came to me in a way that I would understand. Yeah. Right? Um, and I still talk to him all the time. You know, and, and say, hey, Fred, what do I do? Fred, you know, how do I do this? And Fred does, just, just, just does he respond? Cool. Like, do you get do you get spiritual messages from him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and, you know, even the idea of writing the book, you know, and it was just like, yes, write the book. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. which that's a whole nother story in itself. The whole book thing, which I hope we can touch on because mm -hmm. stories are so important, I believe, in healing and recovery and connecting with people. Um, we've been doing it since the beginning of time, telling mm -hmm. stories around the campfires. You know, hey, you can't believe how I killed that dinosaur today. You know, now we've got food. I'm going to slash some meat off. And he was going to get me, but no way. I got him first. Mm -hmm. You know, the hero's journey. Yeah. You know, we're still telling it. Yeah, we'll definitely come to that. I'm a huge fan of like mythology and storytelling and the way yeah. that it conveys information. It's the most effective way. It's a very human way, like you said, of conveying info yeah. and teaching lessons. Um, yeah. you know, fables and myths are how we've formed culture. Ab ab absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, in, in most stories, you know, like I have a book and there's lots of books out there and there's various religious manuscripts, whether it's the Bible or any other type of manuscripts it's still verbally passed knowledge is from one person to a next, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the book is just the, the imprint of that verbal knowledge. At least that's the way that, that I look at. It. Yeah. I think that's true, right? It's an oral history that kind of gets passed down um, and yeah. colored by culture and colored by lineage. So we'll, we'll certainly get to that, but I want to bring you back to, to your story, right? So you have this near death experience. Um, does it, does it change anything in your life? Like, do you, do you learn anything at that point 
Or do you have to go through a couple more fires to? Get <laughs> well, the I, I went through some more fire. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that that started happening, especially a couple of years within a couple of years of that, 13, 14, 15 years old, I became very angry at God. Mm-hmm. And I always had a belief in God. Um, I was, you know, n- never avidly religious, but we we went to a Presbyterian church and I had just this belief in God growing up and always felt that God was there. But when I came back, I became angry that I came back. And instead of having this experience that some people have with near-death experience and they come back right away and have this beautiful message, I suppressed it some and became angry. And as a result of that, I started drinking more um, the liver does grow back. You know, I don't know if it grows back in the way that's originally you're born with, but it grows back, um, at least in that situation, not in cirrhosis or cancer, but in a ruptured liver situation. They took out 6% of my liver and it showed that it grown back. Um, so as I started drinking as a kid and as a teenager, you know, it really gave me more self-esteem because I really had low self-esteem, didn't think I was worth anything, mm-hmm. didn't think the girls were going to like me, although I always had a girlfriend in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, but it just like it gave me more power, so to speak, you know. It's like um, I'm somebody now, you know, mm-hmm. and it it hid away all that discomfort, that emotional feeling that I had. And and even as a kid, I would tell my parents, you know, that I didn't feel like I had recovered emotionally, that I felt like I had covered physically, which they were really happy that their kid was still alive, Mm -hmm. but I was torn up inside. Yeah. Well, fast forward a little bit more after, oh, wrapping my mom's car around a telephone pole and, hitting a house in the middle of the night that jumped out after a night of drinking or uh, getting, you know, pulled over out in the middle of the desert in Eastern Oregon, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, you know, I started to realize that maybe I had a problem, you know, with, with alcohol. Yes. Yeah. And I tried it in the eighties. I tried to get sober off and on and um, not always successful. And then this comes up to 1986. There's kind of a compressed period in 86, 87, 88. 86, I ended up at OHSU, Oregon Health Sciences University. And they told me I had uh, vascular disease, peripheral vascular disease. You know, I'm in my 20s and I have a disease of an 80 or 90 year old. And my right leg was 100% blocked and my left leg was 65% blocked. What, what does that me, mean? Like, did you have lack of feeling or lack of control? Like what? Well, I, I, I had it? numbness in my legs. I was on a cane. I, I oh, always wow. thought it was some nerve thing, but I'd gone to a chiropractor and the chiropractor said, it's not nerves, it's vascular. You need to see a vascular person. Mm-hmm. And which I didn't really know, you know, what it was because I had never been exposed to that before. But they said that they were going to be taking my right leg and my left. And, you know, they gave me various variations to that. I had a couple of surgeries in 86, um, November 86, early no- November. 
and it restored the blood flow. I was back in the hospital next month with blood clots. Um, I was in and out of the hospital a couple of times. And then May of 87, they wanted to do the surgeries again because I had reblocked. And Mark, and I don't know why I did this at the time, but I said no. And I left the hospital AMA against medical advice. Mm-hmm. And um, to make kind of a longer story a little bit shorter, I didn't really know anything about anything at the time. You know, I've been struggling with sobriety in and out, uh, but ended up at a place called Pritikin Longevity Center, which was in Santa Monica. And it was right on the boardwalk, pretty close to the Santa Monica Pier. And I had read a book. It was actually a diet book about food and vegan food. And, you know, now they call it plant-based, but back then it was different terminology. Um, and the doctor there, he said, well, when it hurts, get up and walk. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, when you start walking, you start building new blood vessels. I said, really? Because the doctors in Portland had told me not to walk when it hurt. So I started walking up and down the boardwalk there in Santa Monica. This is 1987. And within two weeks, I went walking from about 10 feet to two miles. Whoa. You know, and I was starting yeah. on a cane, you know, yeah. and it's just like, yeah, whoa is right. <laughs> you, you, you know, and it was just like something is going on here. And I and I started, you know, feeling better again. I I had started getting sober in January of 87. Um, but then December 88. I, I ended up drinking one more time. That was the last time, December 88. And it put me in the hospital again. Um, again, I'm kind of making a, a longer story, a little bit shorter. We can re- come back to it mm-hmm. if you want. Um, but this is where that anger towards God came up. And I didn't really realize it. But, you know, I kept thinking, well, what can God do for me? you know, with my sobriety, how can you get me sober, all that kind of stuff. And then when I went into the hospital that last night that I drank, a friend came to me the next day and he said, are you ready yet? And the only place that I had to turn was to God. That was the only place that I felt like I could turn to. So I said, yes, I'm ready. And I felt this swooshing feeling, Mark, that just it like I can still feel it, you know, you know, that was in 1988, this feeling like everything was going to be OK. Mm-hmm. This feeling like Fred was right there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I knew my whole life was going to change. I had no idea what was going to happen, but I was OK with whatever was going to happen because the way my life had been wasn't working. Yeah, I'm so curious about about that moment and the transformation. You know, I guess the meaning I'm making, and I want you to correct me on this, is that for that first part of your life, it sounds like you had like a death wish, or there was a part of you that wanted to die, or or at least didn't want to be alive, right? That hated something, or was angry, or was sad, or was hurt. But it sounds like over a course of all of this, and then culminating in that spiritual moment, that that changed, right? It sounds like you decided to choose life instead of rejected. Is that, am I hearing you correctly? Yes. I, I want to say yes and no. Cause yeah. Change, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of people that have dealt with re- recovery and addiction that 
um, attempted suicide many times and had a lot of suicidal thoughts. I never remembered a lot of suicide thoughts. You know, I never remembered I'm going to go jump off this bridge or I'm going to drink myself to death. In some ways, I was a party drinker. You know, I was always wanting to have fun. I wasn't an isolator for the most part. You know, I wanted to be around people. I, I wanted to have fun. Um, but not realizing that the fact was near death several yeah. times. You know, and it was really through the recovery process and, and getting sober and look, looking back and realizing that anger towards God and mm -hmm. that that shift is what happened, what got me sober. Mm -hmm. You know, to, today, Mark, on my calendar, I have a yoga class scheduled every single birthday until I'm 110. <laughs> now, I don't know whether I'm going to live to 110, but it's on my calendar. But you're planning for it. I'm planning for it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's really interesting. Okay. Well, we're going to have to move into our first commercial break. When we get back, I want to hear how the story unfolds um, after this kind of choosing life moment. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk more about your book, you know, falling down, getting up and getting a sense of, you know, what inspired you to write it, the spiritual message that that's there and, and what message you want to share with our listeners. So if you're listening, um, stay tuned and we'll see you on the other side of the commercial break. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Michael Harris, and we're just hearing about your story of growth and transformation, right? Like you said, being a wildfire that's been burned over and over again. And you ended the last segment talking about this spiritual moment where it sounds like you really surrendered to God and you really like let, you know, let God in to heal. Um, so I'm curious, where does the story go from there? Well, 
You, you know what? The, to touch on that moment just for a moment. Yeah. There was a life changing decision that I had. You know, I I had been angry at God for so long, and then, like I'd mentioned previously, um, I had no no other place to turn, and I kept you know I kept hearing that it was the only way that I was going to recover, and I'd heard the doctors say that they didn't save me, that God must have saved me. I mean, so I've been hearing this message for a while. And as soon as that that moment came of making that decision um, to turn my life over, everything changed. And uh, within a couple of months, my life was on track. And I started discovering more about who I was, not only who I wasn't, but who I was. Mm And, you know, as I moved forward, you know, and I kept hearing what I'd heard way back to in 1971, that everything is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I heard the spirits say that. I, I heard uh, my spirit guide friends say that. And, you know, it just kept coming. I, I heard my friends say that in the hospital room. Everything's going to be okay, Michael. Mm-hmm. You know, and it is, you know, because, you know, that's. 34 years now, almost 34 years, and everything is is okay. And, um, you know, I, what, one of the things, and I, I, I want to touch on this briefly, Mark, as well, um, at the Longevity Center, at the Pritikin Longevity Center that I'd gone to previously, I had done my first yoga class there. Mm-hmm. It was more like a gentle stretching class. But yoga has been a huge part of my story and a huge part of my healing. And in addition to the walking and the yoga, those two things are still my primary methods of healing and centering and being close to nature. I'm in the woods all, all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what One of my uh, lifetime goals, I say it's my 2022 goal, but it's really my lifetime goal is to get on top of as many buttes as I can in my life. And virtually every week, I'm on the top of one or two different buttes. From where I live, it's easy to get to. Mm-hmm. So yo- yoga, I ended up going through a couple of teacher trainings. I'd made a bunch of money in the 90s doing some op- option trading. And I went to this teacher training with this guy named Bikram Chadre, which was the hot yoga, the Bikram yoga. Mm-hmm. And so I went there in 98. I was one of the early teachers. I had not planned to go teach. I planned to heal my body. And he told me something similar, but in a slightly different way. And he says, don't worry about it. Forget about it. Just do the yoga. Well, I was so, you know, I didn't want to forget about it. I wanted to worry about it. And I didn't want to do the yoga in the way that he suggested I do it. I wanted to do it in my way. And you know, he basically said, well, if you do it this other way, I think you'll get better results. And as soon as I did that, you know, 10 years of that one or two, sometimes three pain level that I still had in my body disappeared again. So that was my number one lesson I've ever learned in yoga was don't worry about it, forget about it, just do the yoga. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? That's really fascinating to me. Well, It's interesting because there's a guy named Dr. John Sarno, which was head of clinical rehabilitation at NYU Medical Center, which was a pain guy. Again, we could do a whole show just on that. 
he says the same thing. You know, when when you get back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, basically says, don't worry about it, forget about it, just keep living your life. Mm-hmm. So the understanding of that concept when Bikram told it to me was that, you know, I was still holding on, you know, like this, holding on like a fist rather than having an, an open palm, right? And so as soon as I released, as soon as I opened up my mind, it's like more energy was coming through, so to speak, you know, and, you know, my healing, the additional pain that I still had in my, particularly my left leg, again, was gone. So the yoga lesson wasn't about how well to do bow pose or triangle or anything else. It was all up here. It was like the monkey mind, letting go of the monkey mind. Right. Well, and it sounds like there's this theme that we're threading around of surrender, yeah. right? Being able to really be present for the moment. Um, and I, yeah, I want to hear about the yoga practice. I've, I've have yoga practice that I've unfortunately been neglecting the past couple of years that I want to get back into. But I remember when I was deep into it, having two really powerful experiences or categories of experience. One was getting really emotional, right? Having like a very big emotional release, oftentimes sadness or sometimes fear um, when I was in, in a pose and really relaxing and letting into it. And then the other one was sometimes after yoga, feeling like very um, energized, like very like electrified. Yeah. I'm curious if you've had those experiences or if you could speak to them. Oh, absolutely. All, all of the above. I mean, I've, right. I've, I've cried, I've had releases. And it's interesting, our body, you know, the cell, each cell, the membrane of the cell is, is 0.7 volts. Well, when you do the math, it turns out that our bodies have about 3.75 trillion volts of electricity in it. Now, let's think about that a little bit. There's been about 2 million Teslas built. Each Tesla is three to 400 volts mm-hmm. each. So if you do the math, it ends up that each human body has the same voltage of about 10 million Teslas. Wow. That's huge. Yeah, that's huge. That's an unbelievable amount of energy. An unbelievable yeah. amount. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if we only learn how to use 1% of that, that's huge, mm-hmm. right? So like this idea of, of feeling like this energy, this charge, I mean, I definitely get it through my practice. And the more that I practice, the more charged up I feel, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Like if I'm practicing every single day, I really feel it in a different way than if I'm practicing two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't practice every day right now. It's two, three, four times a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've owned a couple of studios. I've trained thousands of teachers. I still teach six to 10 classes a month. So yeah, I mean, it's still a huge part of my life. Yeah, there's something really, just, I think what you're highlighting here, what I'm taking from it is just the potential energy in the body, right? Yeah. And how the body seems to orient towards healing. Like when you said when you couldn't walk and it's like, hey, just, just walk, just try to walk. Yeah. The body gets stronger, right? Like it wants to do that. Right. Or when you stretch or when you put yourself in uncomfortable positions through yoga or whatever it is, like the body rises to meet the challenge, which is so counterintuitive in some ways, right? Like you think that by resting, it would grow, but by resting, it actually atrophies. Yeah. You know, 
Like if you're sitting on the couch and eating potato chips. And, exactly. Yeah. If you're, you're just immobile. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the body degrades. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely does. Yeah. Yeah. A body in motion stays in motion. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so like the walking and the yoga and the hiking, I mean, all those things keep me in motion. Yeah, so I'm wondering, do, do you experience, do they interweave with your spirituality? Like, do you, you know, prescribe to the chakras or any of that kind of spiritual part of yoga? Or is it more a physiological thing for you? I'm, I'm going to check off all the boxes above again. Okay, all like, of it. Yeah, you know, so the, the E is all of above, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I cannot say that I know necessarily, you know, all the Sanskrit terms and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I know some about the chakras and, you know, the energy system and all of that. When I practice, yes, there's the physical, but it's really more about keeping the mind calm. Mm -hmm. And when I teach, it's the same thing. It's about keeping the mind calm, regardless of the, physical sensations that I'm feeling or whether I like the person standing next to me or not, or whether I like what the teacher is saying or not, or how much I'm sweating or any, you know, emotions I'm feeling, or, you know, maybe somebody cut me off in traffic on the way to yoga and they didn't know that I was going to yoga. How could they cut me off? Mm -hmm. So letting go of that type of stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, so all those sensations and just being able to breathe. You know, just nice, normal, easy breath with all of that happening around me mm-hmm. or in me. Yeah, that was something that was powerful in my practice and still shows my meditation practice is when I get quiet and tune in, I actually see right now kind of how much pain and tension is in my body. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, do I have this all the time? And the answer is like, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and like with all that restriction, does it it gets in the way of I think the life force that you're talking about that can come bubbling up by removing those those barriers. Now, meditation, I mean my my brother was he's passed, but he was one of the preeminent meditation teachers in the world. Mm-hmm. And you know, what would meditate, you know, an hour or two every day and all of that. Another friend of mine, she created something called three by three meditation, where you meditate three times a day uh, for three minutes. Mm-hmm. And she, for the listeners, and if you know as well, somebody named Dr. Bruce Lipton, which was a cellular biologist, um, still is. And he's written like Biology of Belief and a number of other books. She went to him with her three by three meditation and said, what do you think? He said, this is some of the most powerful meditation I've ever seen. Part of the reason is you do three minutes in the morning. You do three minutes midday sometime. And it's really that midday meditation because by 12, 1, 2 o'clock, our minds are turning and turning and turning. And you just need to stop for three minutes and do nothing. And it just like releases it again. You know, it's that mind that that we get. And then, you know, you you go about the rest of the afternoon much clearer. And then you do that one more three-minute meditation. And it's just like easing into the evening. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah, I think it's true with any stuff. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it does have to be consistent. Consistent is really important. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Yeah, meditating one hour once a month 
isn't nearly as good as doing five minutes once a day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, this is a great conversation. I want to pivot you to one of your other topics, which is around stories. We talked about that a little bit during the first segment. Um, and I saw on your website that you're a coach for authors and that you've, you know, written books yourself. Can you say a little bit more about the power of stories? And Well, what, one of the things that, that I realized about stories, first of all, is that, you know, in grade school, first, second, third grade, maybe even kindergarten, nursery school sometimes, we have something called show and tell. And a teacher says, you know, come and tell us, you know, about your painted rock. You know, so you're getting up in the front of the room in front of your classmates and giving them a short little story about something. We're actually getting speaker training right then and there, although the teacher doesn't say that's what's happening. But we're starting to convey stories and starting to understand the conveyance of stories, even just, you know, a, a little bit, a half a millimeter's worth. And then I've also realized that over the years and centuries and, and eons and everything, stories and that oral tradition, the, the verbal passing of knowledge from one person to the other is really how knowledge is passed. Now, in today's world, there's so much going on within our world and within our atmosphere, and there's wars going on over here, diseases going on over here, arguments in your household, cutting off in traffic, all these different things. So what can we do to begin to help heal you know, without going too woo-woo-y, so to speak, but to actually to help heal human to human. Mm -hmm. One of the things to do, in, in my experience, is stories. So even like my book, My Falling Down, Getting Up, it's a short little book, but me writing down this story was one of the best healing journeys I've ever had. And also many other people have, have wrote to me that have read that story that says, I felt better after reading your story. It gave me hope. Now, there might be somebody else that I've also had a few people write me uh, notes that say, I hated your book. What are you talking about? And that's going to happen. That's the nature of it. But you may be able to tell a story that's going to help somebody. You have a podcast that you're bringing all these incredible people on, you know, talking about addiction to chaos and toxic, toxic relationships and sobriety and healing the spine and, and all these different story ideas that are helping other people heal. It's helping us heal by telling the story. It's helping the other people. And then the other people that are hearing. So if you're a listener, I invite you to share your story, even if it's over dinner with a friend. You know, it can be huge and we can be extremely inspirational and motivational. And, you know, many years ago, one of my students made me a little bowls, one of my yoga students. And it says, one more open heart in the world is one more open heart in the world. And it just goes around in a circle like this. One more open heart in the world is one more open heart in the world. You know, it just keeps going in a circle. And I believe that if we can help ourselves have one more open heart and help other people have one more open heart, perhaps we're going to find a way to heal regardless of what happens. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful, really well said. You know, and my uh, my day job is a psychotherapist and it's all about stories, right? It's all about listening to stories, being a witness, um, allowing people to 
kind of crystallize their story and put it out there. And it is, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And like you said, it's, you know, at least the way I frame it is that it's very primal. It's that campfire experience. You know, it's like you said, after the hunt, it's, you know, sharing and connecting. And for many people I work with, not only have they never told their story, they've never thought about what their story is and what it might mean to them. Yeah. Um, and they live their life very um, lost, I think, until they can get to a place where they can start to really vocalize it yeah. and work through it and, and not just report the facts, but feel it, right? Feel yeah. through those memories and those moments as well. And, and I have to imagine writing a book, especially if it's, you know, a memoir is very similar to that. Yeah. And it's interesting for the fans of Gabor Mate, um, he was on a recent episode of Impact Theory, which is a really great podcast. And you can Google Gabor Mate, Impact Theory. He talks about our story. And it's really powerful if you've ever understood him. And he writes a lot about addiction and recovery and, and all of that. You know, there's also the idea of, you know, a lot of misperceptions about our stories. I've looked back at my stories and I've had ideas in my head about my story and they were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, and it's just like, oh wrong and, and imprisoning, right? I mean, yeah. that's a big part of psychotherapy is we believe stuff about ourselves that yeah. might not be true. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of stuff I believe about myself that still are not true, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's story to me. Um, is vital. And there's more books being published every year. Every year, more books are being published hmm. for a reason. Yeah. Right. People are out there sharing what they're passionate about, right? Yeah. And sharing who they are. Um, yeah. And I think it, everything being more accessible is just is helping all that, right? Yeah. Um, Self-publishing, more technology, more things well, like that. It, it's almost like I feel like there's a responsibility to talk story right now, because mm -hmm. there are some places in the world that you can't tell your story. If you say certain words, if you say the word war, you'll go to store, you'll go to prison for 15 years or, you know, and it's just like, really? You know, so somehow I almost feel like by telling stories and having more podcasts and all of these, it helps, you know, break that logjam, so to speak. I call it a logjam. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Right? There's almost like an imperative to express the freedom. Um, yeah. So we're going to move to our final commercial break. When we get back, I want to hear more about, about that process and what you might say to a listener that wants to get their story out there. Maybe that's afraid to get their story out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so if you're, if you're tuning in, um, stay tuned through the break and we'll see you on the other side. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. 
This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash, azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot, teachable, dot com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. So we were just talking during the break uh, with Michael Harris, and you were sharing that you have an exercise that helps people express their stories and overcome some of the resistance because, you know, again, as a psychotherapist, I see, I see the main resistance being shame. I see that a lot. I see a lot of people saying, you know, why does my story matter? Who would want to listen to it? Um, I'm boring, you know, all these kind of emotional resistances to putting themselves out there. Um, so I'm curious how you help your clients to overcome those barriers. One of the things that I like to do whenever I'm helping somebody with, with story, and it may not necessarily be, you know, therapeutic, but in, in the therapeutic sense, although it could be used in a therapeutic environment as well. One of the exercises I do is it's not like really a true timeline as a timeline as such, but to take your life and divide it by five. So let, let's say somebody's 40 years old. If you divide it by five, you now have five eight-year segments, right? So is to go back then in each one of those eight-year segments, say one to eight, nine to 17, you know, et cetera, is find three stories that stand out to you. So like if you're one through eight, might be if you can remember the first time you rode a bike or first time you fell off a bike or, you know, what, whatever it is, and then maybe the next one. And there could be some trauma in there too. Some of the memory could be a trauma. You know, I got beat up in the neighborhood. My parents uh, hit me. It could be all sorts of, of different stories. And so you go through each one of those periods and highlight those first impressions. Now, I, I want to emphasize this isn't something that takes a long time to do. Mm -hmm. Ideally, each one of those segments is no more than three to five minutes. You know, you just write down your, your first thoughts. Mm -hmm. I do invite anybody to do this is not to just focus on the trauma type events, but also focus on something exciting that happened. You know, may, maybe it was getting your, high school diploma and there was something big about that you're also a big baseball player or whatever it might be you know so to also highlight those positive things that happen um now i'm going to give you a, a brief example when i was six years old um in how to take that what you wrote down as a story when i was six years old my mom used to make the best blackberry pies in the neighborhood right 
And all the kids wanted to come over and have Mrs. Harris's blackberry pies. Well, we, we had a couple of acres where I was growing up and we had a bunch of blackberries in the field. I would go out and pick them. My mom would make the pie. And my dad was an entrepreneur and my dad, you know, always encouraged us, even at that age, he said, as an entrepreneur, find something somebody wants to buy and sell it to them. Well, all the kids wanted my mom's pie. So I said, mom, I said, why don't I pick these pies? You bake them. I'll go around the neighborhood and sell them to all my friends' parents. And she said, sure, I get 50 cents. You get 50 cents. Mm -hmm. Right. So I started going around the neighborhood selling the pies and everybody wanted Mrs. Harris's pies. Right Now, why is this important? This exercise that I just mentioned came out of that. Mm. So I was able to to pull that out of my life many years ago and to be able to now tell that story. And I can tell that story in one minute or I could tell it as a keynote speech, you know, for 40, 45, 50 minutes on stage you know, the story of my first entrepreneurial journey, right? I can also talk about it, about his relationship with my mother and, and how it, you know, really developed a stronger bond with my mom. So there's also different stories with that same experience, right? And that's just one easy event. The BlackBerry entrepreneur story is primarily the, the way that I talk about it today. But like with my book, when I started writing down my experience of my water skiing accident, you know, I took a look at my water skiing accident, all that had happened, the surgery, the near-death experience, all these different types of things. I can also take that particular story and talk about it in one minute, in five minutes, in 40 minutes, or all day long for, for that matter. Or I could also use that same story as inspiration. I could help kids with it that are going through their own healing and, and hospital journey. You know, so there's different ways to take those stories depending upon where you are. But the simplest thing, again, take your life, divide it by five, your 48 year uh, versions, and then just go find little things in each one of those that stand out to you. There's some deeper processes, but that's a great initial process that could keep somebody busy for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the way you talked about that, right? And the associative nature of it, I think it's really interesting. You know, like, does your mind spit up a bunch of trauma? Yeah. That's okay. But it shows you something about how your brain works and how you're conceptualizing your life, right? Yeah. Or does your mind focus on those highlights? Or does it all, is it all about relationships, right? Oh, I dated this person. I dated this person. I lost this person, right? Um, I get really interested in how the filter that people have on their lives, right? And what they deem important and what they deem unimportant. And it sounds like this activity is a way to start to understand the filter that people have of how they make their life narrative. Yeah. And it, it often reveals something that you may not have thought about before. And that's why I mentioned that the blackberry, you know, picking the blackberries. I never had really thought about it until I'd done this exercise, mm -hmm. you know, in that way. And then realized, oh, yeah. Oh, what was dad telling me? What was mom telling me? How did that simple event really influence me? And there's a lot of six-year-old events that influence us. You know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I know you said it's not therapeutic, but that is a therapy exercise. I mean, yeah. you're, you're doing it right. And 
Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine the author groups and things that you run can get pretty emotional sometimes as people are not just, you know, figuring out what their stories are, but sharing it with other people. Because the moment you make it real, whether it be in a group or you put pen to paper, it just crystallizes, right? Like it's, there's something very powerful about that. Can you you say a little bit about that, of the process of actually creating a book and, and writing something down? Well, it's not only creating a book. I probably do it more for people that are going on podcast and they may have a book, but it, it's even interesting because often authors that already have a book think that they know what they want to talk about. But then once they do this exercise and they can do it in relationship to their book, all sorts of new stories come up. And yes, there are some emotional times that, you know, some of my clients have, you know, whether it's in a group environment that we're working with or a one-on-one where there's that breakthrough that, that happens. Mm-hmm. And then we can take that story and come onto a podcast and tell it in a way that the listeners will understand. So it's almost like it's helping people develop their stories regardless of where they're sharing it could be on a podcast, it could be in a book, it could be on stage, keynote speaking, could be TEDx, it doesn't matter. It could be at dinner with friends. You know, so it's it's really getting in touch with who we are and who we believe we are and who we're not. Because mm-hmm. again, telling these stories also reveal who we're not. Yeah, yeah. Right? They show like what your values are, right? And what, yeah. what your values aren't. And what kind of person you are, um, you know, when the going gets tough or when, it, you know, yeah. adversity strikes or whatever it ha- yeah. happens to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what would you say to somebody who was struggling with writer's block, who they want to get it out there, right? But they just go to sit down, they go to express themselves and it's just frozen. Yeah. Well, there, there's another process that a lot of people do. I haven't done it as, I can't say I totally haven't done it. Because I had a, a writer at one point many years helping me with stuff. And I was verbally telling her my story. And she was recording it and then writing it down and drafting it out and then showing it to me. And today, many authors today, because they have a difficult writing for whatever reason or writer's block, but they're really good at talking, is that they record their stories you know, somehow on a recorder and then be able to draft that out, mm-hmm. you know, and then eventually get get it edited. But oftentimes that voice that we have when we're speaking can be more powerful than the written word that we're doing because mm-hmm. it, it's really conveyed in a way that's natural to us. Sometimes books are written, how do I say it, I'm almost too too correctly you know the english is too correct right but it doesn't necessarily convey the essence of the story of the person and the emotions Mm -hmm. so sometimes that verbal release that recording of it drafting it you get a different feel than if you had just written that story yeah that makes a ton of sense and it's you know advice i work with my clients too of finding the medium that works for them Right. Some people are really great at speaking. Some people want to express it through music. Some people want to express it visually. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like 
trying to work with the mind. It's similar to what you said, right? Like knowing who you are, but also knowing who you're not. Yeah. Right. Like maybe writing, you know, on a typewriter in a cabin in the woods might sound romantic, but that might just not be who you are, you know, <laughs> right. it just might not work for you. Yeah. And I, I, I tell you, I mean, every author or every writer finds kind of a different way to work. And like when, when I wrote my falling down, getting up the way that I did it, it was in my head for many, many years. And finally I got triggered and it was just like, I'm going to write it in 90 days. I wrote it in 79 days. How did I do that? I went to Starbucks or the local coffee shop for two hours a day. I did a two hour block every single day and I would go and I sit down and I write. I couldn't do it at home, too many distractions. There was food, there was laundry. I kept getting distracted. But by going to a place where I had nothing else, that's all I did. I was the guy in the corner with his teacup or coffee cup, you know, writing away on, on my old computer. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear that that works for a, a lot of writers, right? It's like really creating that, you know, in some ways, very sacred space yeah. to show up and do it and strip away everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, maybe someone else works better in community, right? I mean, maybe having like a group yeah. of writers that all are doing it together and have check-ins and accountability that might work for somebody else as well. Yeah. And that does. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the writers groups are very common. They're doing a writing retreat, right? Or you yeah. go and you're doing 10 days and you're just writing all the time right. every day, right? right? Doing like yeah. the sprint method. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. how would you, I guess maybe is it just trial and error, but how do you know which one would work for you? I think it's probably trial and error. And, and I don't know if I thought about it too much. That's a great question. It's just like the only thing that, that I remember is sitting there at home feeling like I couldn't write and going to a coffee shop and going, wow, this really works. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't that I thought it out too much. I just kind of gravitated towards it. Yeah. You know, yeah. but if, if you know that writing isn't your thing and talking is, you know, try it out. See how it works. Yeah, find someone to talk to, right? Yeah. Or talk, talk to a machine. Yeah. And yeah. Then, then you can go to like rev.com or someplace else. There's lots of sites where you get transcripts and get a draft of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then edit it from there. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just about wrapping up here, but I guess the what I was asking behind that question, the question that comes up a lot on this podcast that I want to ask you is so many people heal their spiritual people, you know, therapists, right? They say like, figure out who you are, find yourself. And I'm just curious, how do you do that? Cause it's like, like that's the advice, right? I mean, that's the way to do it. But I think a lot of people get stuck because they get overwhelmed by that question. So I want to give you a chance of what to talk about, what that process is like for you of how do you figure out who you are? Yeah, that's, that's a deep question. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's, it's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, what, what's coming to me right now is that we often overcomplicate it. Mm-hmm. I know that, that I went through a whole period of time where I overcomplicated who I was, trying to figure it all out. And somebody walked me through this process, even you know, in the late 80s when I uh, first started getting sober and coming into recovery, he just said, well, let's just sit down and do this. And we had it done within three months, mm-hmm. right? Just kind of going, okay, who are you? Who aren't you? 
what about your recovery? What about, you know, these different events that, that happened? Um, how can you understand that? And so he just walked me right through that process without delay. And I think for me, I needed that incentive to just dive in. Yeah. Right, right, rather than sit around and think about something for a year. No, that doesn't mean that I don't reflect back on it and it hasn't changed. But um, that first initial go, just keeping it simple. I think that's really great advice, keeping it simple and, and getting that push, right, to just do it and not overcomplicate things. Um, so, Michael, this podcast went by really fast. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, as we're wrapping up here, where could people find you if they want to learn more about who you are, what you do out there? The easiest place they can find me is just at my website. It's, it's really easy. It's michaelbharris.com. B as in book, michaelbharris.com. And I mentioned this to you before as, as well. I don't always give my book away. Um, I do a lot of podcasts. But um, if they, somebody wants my book, if they go to michaelbharris.com forward slash book, um, they can download a, a free ebook copy if they want, or it's available by print in any bookstore. But that link, michaelbharris.com forward slash book, is a hidden link, so you won't find it on the regular site. Um, and I invite really anybody to take the process that I mentioned and the writing process and take a look at their own stories mm -hmm. and begin to share it with other people as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining. And for those listeners tuning in, we'll see you next week on another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet Triumph and Defeat and treat those two imposters the same. 